Today, the message is the final exhortations. Final exhortations are important. Final words are special. In 2016, I have the privilege to be by my father's side before he passed. It was a special moment. One of his last words on his deathbed, as he looked around at each family member surrounding the bed, was, I am contented. I am satisfied. I am fulfilled. That was a special moment for me because I knew then that my father has had a good closure in life. He left this world a contented man. What a comfort for me to know and what a comfort for the whole family to know that he was ready to go and he left a contented man. What is Jesus' last exhortation to his disciples before he goes to the cross? And today we want to share with you this message as an encouragement for us to grow together. John chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. I'll read to you. You are welcome to join me or look at your Bible or look at your electronic appliances to look at the scriptures together and then we'll expound God's word together. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in, ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answers them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How did Jesus prepare the disciples to face his impending crucifixion? By using plain language in anticipation of trials with the assurance of peace. That's the outline I'll share with you. By using plain language in anticipation of trials with the assurance of peace. Let's begin with the first point, by using plain language. And Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figure of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. You know, beginning in chapter 13 of John. Jesus embarked on a prolonged teaching we commonly call the Upper Room Discourse to prepare the disciples for His crucifixion and ultimate departure from this world. He washed their feet and gave them a new commandment to love each other. He told them that He will go to prepare a room for them and will come back to take them there because He's the way, the truth, and the life. He will send the Holy Spirit to convict the world but to enlighten the disciples into the truth of God. 
He told them that He is a true vine, and they are the branches, and they must bear fruits by abiding in Christ. And though the disciples would face persecutions, but their sorrows would turn to joy at Jesus' resurrection. Now, the time has come for Jesus to use plain language. Easy to understand. No more beating around the bushes, no riddle or hinting. Just tell it as it is. Because the straight answer is what the disciples need to prepare them for Jesus' impending crucifixion in a very short time. So here's a final exhortation. They will wrap up the upper room discourse, beginning in chapter 13 and ending right here in this passage. Four long chapters of the upper room discourse, but the final exhortations now. And Jesus said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech, and Jesus acknowledged that throughout the entire upper room discourse, he had not been giving direct answers to his disciples' questions, and he did this because the disciples were not ready to accept it. In the same chapter, in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You don't understand. So Jesus was not saying. Even with plain language, the audience doesn't always respond in a positive way. Remember how many times Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, but it fell on deaf ears. Yes, Jesus has used a figure of vine to talk about his relationship with his disciples. He had also used the analogy of a woman in childbirth to explain how with the arrival of a baby, she would quickly forget the labor pain. And in the same way, the disciples' sorrow would turn to joy at Jesus' resurrection. But now, their perplexity of Jesus' going away has begun to give place to clearer understanding in plain language. So Jesus said, the hour is coming. The hour that Jesus will rise from the dead and return to the Father and send the Holy Spirit to guide the disciples. Jesus would no longer speak figuratively to them, but clearly to them. He and the Spirit would help the disciples to understand the meaning of what He has said earlier. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples for 40 days. What was He doing? For 40 days, talking about the kingdom of God. That they didn't get it, but after Jesus' resurrection, they begin to understand. And in verse 26, he says, In that day you will ask me in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. In that day is the day after his resurrection and ascension. And after Jesus' ascension, the disciple will pray directly to the Father, and the Father will grant them their request for two reasons. First, because they pray in Jesus' name. Their prayers will be aligned with God's will. Their prayers will be aligned with Jesus' power, and the Father will answer. But secondly, there's a second reason for the answered prayer. It's in verse 27. It says, For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
they have loved God's Son and had believed on Jesus, and the Father loves them because of that. If you recall, in John 14, verse 21, Jesus said, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And this is a repeat of the same theology, of the same teaching there. Because you love me and believe in me, the Father himself will love you. So if you put it together, because of the privilege of the prayer, and because of the love of the Father, and plus the work of the Holy Spirit that Christ was sent to enlighten us of God's truth, the disciples will know plainly about the Father and there will be no ambiguity. Some of you Bible students will ask the questions, what about Jesus' intercessory role, high priestly role, as He sits on the right side of the Father to intercede for us until He comes again? Of course, this is not to say that Jesus will stop interceding for His disciples with the Father. His point is that the Father's love for them would move Him to grant their petitions in addition to Jesus' intercession. You know, in verse 27, we encounter a beautiful truth that is so much needed today. Verse 27 says, For the Father Himself loves you. I don't know how many of you missed that because I talk so quickly. The Father Himself loves you. You know the implication of that? You know the meaning of that? It is saying, the Father loves you not through the guardian angels, not through the seraphim who are ministering before the throne of the Father in Isaiah chapter 6, singing holy, 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 not through His anointed servants, but the Father Himself loves you. Did you get that? You know how powerful that is? He is saying the Father takes a personal interest in you, in you, in you, and in you. You know, we need to hear that over and over again. One of the major crises in faith happens when we begin to doubt God's love. We live in a time of violence and political divides, hate crimes, depolarizations, natural disaster, international conflicts. We need to remind ourselves repeatedly that the Father Himself loves you. He takes a personal interest in you. You know, when I come to the preparation, I can't help but to think of Stuart Townsend's song, How Deep the Father Loves for Us. I think it's worthy for us to sing together now as a reminder, as a proclamation that yes, indeed, the Father Himself loves you. It's a powerful song with a beautiful lyrics that is biblical 
and lead us into the depths of God's love that is so much needed today. Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Oh, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have made my ransom. Why should I? Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Church, the Father Himself loves you. Remember that. Remember that. The Father Himself loves you. Jesus used plain language to talk to the disciples so that they fully understand who He is before Jesus will face His crucifixion and going to the cross. And in verse 28, He will tell them in plain language, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is a great statement about the identity of Christ. Who is Jesus? in His self-declaration, in plain language. And theologians will agree that this is probably the most concise statement on Christology, on the doctrine of Christ, that talks about Jesus' origin are divine, 
He came from God. He was sent on a mission to the world, and He will return to the Father after completing His work. And this is Jesus' incarnation coming into the world and ascension going back to the Father distilled to its most essential form in plain language. And naturally, in verses 29 to 30, the disciples responded, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. Finally, we got it. You really are the one who you claim to be. And you do not need us to question you to find out what is in our hearts. You know our hearts. You really are God. The disciples now feel that Jesus has plainly answered their questions about where He was going. He will be going back to the Father. He said that many times. But now they finally got it. And this revelation helps them to believe that Jesus knew what He was talking about when He taught them about God and His ways. It also helps them to believe that Jesus had indeed came from God. They got it. You know, the disciples took a long time to finally get it, right? Three and a half years? Only at this moment, they finally get everything together and say, Oh, Eureka! Light bulb moment, we got it. The gospel and the will of God is made plain in our days with the full revelation of God through the inspired word in the Bible. My question is, does it make it easier for us to be more responsive? What do you think? The disciples only had the Old Testament when Jesus was talking about His redemption and plan for the future and sending the Holy Spirit. They didn't get it. We are like, okay, we understand. But now the audience in the modern world, 21st century, with a full Bible in translation in different languages, in different versions, do we get it? Are we more responsive as compared to the disciples? Not necessarily. Why? Because deep in our heart is a craving for independence from God. Or worse, to be like God. And this, that is exactly what the serpent tried to arouse in the heart of Adam and Eve as they stare at the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was so appealing and yet so deadly. As God has told them, that the day they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they shall die. And they ate, and they died spiritually, forever alienated from God by their sinful desire to be like God. Until the seed of the woman who will come to bruise the head of the serpent, though he was bruised in his heel. And this is the, to foretell the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, when he defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. You know, the same craving also lurks in the heart of us who proclaim the gospel, teaching the Bible, actively serving God in different capacities. We are equally vulnerable when we feel superior 
in a biblical interpretation. Elbowing others whom we disagree and divide the body of Christ. Laboring others as liberal when it is only the secondary issue, secondary doctrine which is at stake. But we were easily laboring people as wayward, away from God. And that same craving continues to hide in our dark corner of our hearts. Ever ready to wear its head when we give in to temptations and our eyes are captivated by another forbidden fruit that the world offered, stirring up the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life. The three avenues that Satan tempts us to fall in sin. Bible in plain language that we understand today. But to obey, to obey God's word in plain language, we must die to ourselves. As Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You see, the cross is an instrument of execution by death. When we take up our cross, we are dying to ourselves every day so that Christ may live in us. Otherwise, it will always be a battle of the two wills. And as you know, we can only serve one master in our heart. If there are two masters, there will be a civil war within ourselves and we are going nowhere. We must die to ourselves in order to apply the Word of God in plain language because we understand now. Jesus used plain language to prepare the disciples in His last exhortation before He goes to the cross. And secondly, He prepares His disciples in anticipation of trials. Verses 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Here Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. Do you now believe? Because Jesus knows better. Jesus is reminding the disciples to examine how strong their commitment is to him. You see, the disciples know it in their heads, but not in their hearts. When Jesus was arrested, they were all scattered to their respective home, and Jesus was left alone to fend for himself. But Jesus rested in the assurance that the Father is with him, and the Father will never leave him. He says the hour is coming. It seems so soon that it has come. It looks so real and so soon it has already come. Yes, even in the best interest of explaining the truth that Jesus wants the disciples to understand in plain language and even in the midst of understanding God's truth that there will also be trials that we have to encounter. You see, our faith is being tested all the times, right? In our triumph and in our failures, 
we are tested. In your failure, you are discouraged. In your triumph, you become prideful. Temptations are there. In our pains and in our joy, we are tested. In health and in sickness, of course, we are tested even more. Practically in every season of our lives, in every life experience, in different stages of our growth, our faith will be tested. And because we are tested constantly, it becomes a constant struggle, like a tug of war. And we often vacillate between nearer to God and further away from God, closer to God's will, further away to God's will. And even as you sit in the worship hall today, right here, your minds are easily distracted and constantly wandering. You can blame the preaching or the temperature of the room, like it's too stuffy. Or Super Bowl, I'm distracted. But ultimately, people, ultimately, church, if we are honest, ultimately, it is your heart's condition. It is your heart's condition. So powerfully described, penned by the hymn, Come Down Fount of Every Blessing, it depicts our hearts as prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the Lord I love. That's our heart condition. So easily distracted, so easily tempted to the desires of the eyes, to the desires of the flesh, the pleasure, the sensuality. And it says, how do we solve that? It says, here is my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the court above. Seal it for the heavenly commitment. Through Christ's work and the Holy Spirit, it has to be sealed in a way that we will continue to be staunch, to be committed in walking with Jesus, in being His disciples. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the court above so that I can finish my race. You see, it is in surrender that we find rest in Christ. Dying to ourselves. A theologian by the name Eberhard Arnold puts it this way. He said, only to the degree that we, only to the degree that all our own power is dismantled will God be able to give the fruits of the Spirit and build up His kingdom through us, in us, and among us. And he said, there is no other way. It's the only way. If we want to exercise God's word in plain language and experience God that we read and understand, not like the disciples, there is no other way but to dismantle your own power but take up the will of God in your life and my life. So in times of trial, our Lord Jesus invites you to surrender, to surrender to do His will. So finally, in preparation for the disciples to know that Jesus will face His crucifixion, His final exhortation, 
not only using the plain language and in, and in anticipation of trials, but with a full assurance of peace. Verse 33. It's a powerful verse there. And a very encouraging verse in verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus leaves this beautiful and wonderful words to his disciples, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word take heart means to take courage. Do not be discouraged. Take courage, I have overcome the world. He said plainly, in the world they shall have tribulation. A sin-tainted world will continue to have death, decay, and destructions. It will experience turbulence, turmoil, pains, and sufferings. That's a reality. You can't ignore that. But in Christ, in Jesus, in me, Christ said, you shall experience peace in the relationship with God. Just like the intimate relationship of the branches abiding in the vine. In their connection, Christ's life flow into the branches. In that same connection, the peace that Christ offers flows into our heart in our relationship with Him. The disciples will experience persecution in this world from unbelievers. However, the peace that Jesus will give them will overcome the tribulation from the world through His death on the cross. But remember, it is not the peace without troubles. It is a peace that transcends hostility. Jesus puts peace and tribulation right next to each other. Two realities, but happening at the same time, that you and I will experience as we live through this world. Gary Burke, a commentary writer on the book of John, says that, the peace of Jesus is a condition that takes the uncertainties and struggles of this world seriously. It is real. It is serious. But like a seagull, riding the surface of a turbulent sea is able to climb swells and drop into the valleys without worry. See, the seagulls expect the sea to be choppy. The seagull expects the sea will never be smooth. It will always be waves. The only difference is big waves or small waves. So the seagull soaring on the surface of the sea will always, in anticipation of the choppy sea, and goes up and down with the waves. Goes up and down with the waves. Expect it. And Jesus is telling us to expect that too. In this world, there will be tribulation, but in me, you will have peace. But we must anchor ourselves in the cross of Jesus because it was on the cross that Jesus has overcome the world when he triumphed over sin, death, and Satan. And today, as you go out and as a preacher, I want to exhort you and encourage you with these words for my message today. 
as we go through life intertwined with turbulence and tribulations and peace. We need to trust Jesus to walk by faith and not by sight. The reality is that our lives is intertwined with tribulation and peace. Trust Jesus to walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. You know, we shall always be living between two, these two realms, in Christ and in the world. The tension is real. Sometimes we are overwhelmed by it. It's difficult to live in two realms, right? At times we are confused as to which realm I am in right now. Sometimes we are frustrated by the sick and horrible happenings in this world. But at other times, we are disappointed by not growing closer to God in Christ, in Christ, in the world, in Christ, in the world. We are caught in two realms. What the disciples have gone through is what we will go through as well. A life is intertwined with sorrow and joy and trials and peace. They all happen at the same time. They come at different seasons. There's no particular sequence. They don't ask permission. They don't give advance notice. They don't take queue numbers. They don't always come one at a time. And that's why we have so much stress and anxiety in life today. I don't know how many of you have nightmares. Your nightmares typically reflect your anxieties, right? I have nightmares too. Most of my nightmares relate to the preaching to an audience when I was scrambling last minute to get my message out and I ran out of ideas. I don't know what to say. Then I woke up panicky and anxious. It's a typical preacher's Nightmare. Henley doesn't have that. Terrence doesn't have that. It's me. Sometimes I dreamed that I was standing before an audience, standing before an audience, and I opened my Bible and opened my sermon scripts. It was blank. I panicked. I woke up. Psychologists in our midst, please tell me that it's time for me to take a sabbatical rest. Okay. <laughs> In time such as this, I would just go back to God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to guide me to find peace and rest in Him. It inevitably leads me back to reflect on who God is. He's the God who told Moses, when Moses said, Lord, I'm not eloquent. Don't send me to Pharaoh. And God says, I make your lips. I make your tongue. Who am I? I am a servant of God. I'm a child of God. That's my identity in Christ. Why am I here? Because God calls. So I respond. God calls me to lead the church together with a team of pastors and deacons and officers to be a vibrant church of disciple makers. That's why I'm here. 
Where is my hope? My hope is in, not in how big the church is. My hope is in how many church plants can we plant out there? How big is our budget? How many missionaries can we, can we support? My hope is Christ and His cross. It's about God. It's not about you and me. See, sometimes when we have nightmare because we are in performance anxiety, we want to perform well, and we feel that we can't reach there, so we are anxious, we have sleepless nights, and we wake up in nightmares. But once you allow God to take you back to who God is, who, who you are, why are you here, what is your hope, God's Word begins to minister to you in a way that brings you back to the reality that I'm a child of God. All will be well because He has overcome the world. Oftentimes when I wake up in anxiety through those nightmares, that's how the peace of God reigns in my heart. And I hope you, as you live in this world today, constantly bombarded by all the bad news, horrible things happening in different corners around the world, hardly any good news. The gospel is not important to the news media. What is juicy, what is sensational, what is eye-catching is important to them. So you are bombarded with all these things. I pray that you will also be guided by the Holy Spirit that take you back to your identity in Christ, that takes you back to who you are, who God is, why are you here, what is your hope, where are you going, and that becomes the anchor for you to live confidently and the peace of God reigns in your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this last exhortation before you go to the cross. And that, that verse really resonates in our hearts that says, in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, this is exactly the message we need today for all of us. Whether we are working in the marketplace, whether we are raising our children, whether we are living in our community, in our neighborhood. Lord, we pray that your peace will reign in our hearts and be reminded that you have overcome the world. And it is on that truth that we press on together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.